Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. I'm your host, Aliza Arıcan. My guest today is Irina Carlota Silber, or as I know her, Lottie Silber, who's Professor of Anthropology at the City College of New York and at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We will be talking about her book, After Stories, Transnational Intimacies of Postwar El Salvador, published in 2022 by Stanford University Press. Thank you very much, Loti, for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much, Aliza. It's really just an honor and a privilege to be here in conversation with you and your listeners. Oh, the pleasure is all ours. Um, so we usually start our episodes with the story of what led our authors to this project. But to me, your book really reads like such a long time in the making. And, you know, you're very straightforward about how you looked back to decades of field notes and wrote a book informed by them, not just about them, but informed by them. So I'm curious about what made you want to write such a book? And what about Chalatenango and your relationship to it made you want to write a book that moves between the past, present, and future? <sighs> yeah, thank you so much <laughs> for that question. It's a big one. And it's it's one that sort of like, um, that sort of it goes deep in my heart. Um, one of my colleagues, when she introduced me at uh, said that I was a seasoned scholar, like, you know, con sazón. And I sort of <laughs> like that idea of season. That is uh, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Ramon Hernandez, who's at the CUNY Dominican Studies Institute and in the Department of Sociology. And that sort of really stuck with me um, recently. You know, this book is a long time in the making, but I also say in After Stories that I hadn't anticipated writing it. Mm-hmm. Um and I hadn't really wanted, didn't feel that I, there's, there's an extraordinary new generation of scholarship uh, by Salvadoran, a new generation of Salvadoran scholars, Central American scholars, Central American American scholars. And so part of my commitment is that one of solidarity of stepping up to step aside to showcase all of that extraordinary work. And at the same time, this book sort of emerged out of a recognition that I had been acompañando and had a compromiso con El Salvador since, you know, actually before 1993, when I was a young undergraduate student at uh, George Washington University and taking my first kind of ethnographic methods course in political anthropology. And it was that one professor, Roger Rasnick, who said, you know, I think that you can, you're interested in sort of Latinidad, you could explode that a little and look at the, you know, emergence of grassroots organizations in Washington, D.C. that were working with um, undocumented migrants, folks who were seeking political asylum and were denied uh, in the late 1980s, uh, early 1990s, before the signing of the peace accords. So part of, part of the project that brought me back was this kind of my own long unfolding experience uh, and intimate relationships that waxed and waned, as I talk about in the book that I think in anthropology, sometimes we're not honest enough about kind of that, those relationships. Um, And actually the emergence in 2014 
on unaccompanied minors. Um, when El Salvador for a long time had been in the news during the Cold War uh, and then with the emergence of the peace accords in 1992, uh, kind of as a model example of how to, you how one, the United Nations brokered peace accords, a model of disarmament and rebuilding. Um, and then there had been kind of a xenophobic and racist popular media representation of El Salvador as a site of ongoing violence with gang, uh, Mara, Salvatrucha, and so on, that erased the kind of U.S. foreign and domestic policy around that sensationalizing kind of narrative. And so I felt a kind of ethnographic, anthropological human responsibility to think a little bit more deeply about if there was a way that I could um, tell a different kind of story. Uh, and in the book, I talk about the ways in which my understanding of kind of three tropes, bodies, numbers, and things became to sort of tell a very flattening, dehumanizing tale around El Salvador, Salvadorans, Salvadorans in the diaspora, and so on. Um, and, you know, as I am a seasoned anthropologist, <laughs> the kind of work that I did uh, allowed for kind of the handwritten field notes, the volumes like, you know, I'm dating myself, but the kind of uh, print, you know, now I've computer field notes that then you printed out and then went over with highlighter and and sticky notes uh, old school style. And so I had a range from 1993 when I first started fieldwork as a young master's student at, at NYU and then my doctoral research in 1996 and 1997 and then follow-up research in uh, the 2000s um, when I was a tenure-track professor at City College where I am now uh, a professor and chair of the Department of Anthropology and Interdisciplinary Programs. And so I had decades of uh, waxing and waning, ebbing and flowing, um, ethnographic fieldwork, but everyday kind of life experiences with folks from uh, Chalatenango in the northern department of El Salvador, which had been a site of extreme wartime violence, but also of insurgent activity. Uh, and organizing, and a flurry of post-war development, and then research across the United States where many generations, protagonist generation of war, but also their children and now their grandchildren uh, are living in the United States. Um, and so as I was maintaining this sort of arc of relationships with people, I also started embarking on a new project that at first seemed completely unrelated in critical disability studies. And as I talk about in the book, it was a very intimate sort of critical disability studies found me through motherhood. And I sort of, um, as I was wrapping up Everyday Revolutionaries, which was my first book, I started delving into brand new literatures for me in medical anthropology, in disability studies that were beyond anthropology, uh, memoirs, uh, literature, and somehow that new work for me in critical disability studies, new competencies, always led me back to El Salvador and thinking about chronicity, about bodies, about numeric vulnerability, um, numeric violence. And it pushed me to think in new ways about how I could intervene on the kinds of narratives that are so hegemonic uh, and do discursive violence to uh, a place and communities that, it, that I felt deep solidarity and, and I don't know if anthropologists say this, but you know, uh, deep love for. Mm -hmm. And so uh, where I had been, you know, uh, I think the first time I stepped into those communities, I was in my early 20s. So really romantic, very naive time and a time of extraordinary, extraordinary kind of hope. Um, those peace accords were signed in 1992 and I arrived in 1993 in places that were mobilizing for the 
elections of the century, they were called, where former insurgents had laid down their guns and become an official political party. And so people were mobilizing in these kinds of dramatic new modalities. Um, so that's a little bit about kind of the entanglements of my projects that then, and the context in which we live in today, um, that made me consider um, writing a book in a different kind of style that could honor, respect, and I hope do justice to um, the narratives that I was privileged um, to learn about for, you know, now 25, 30, <laughs> 30, 30 years, 30 years, <laughs> you know, yeah, 30 years. Wow. Okay. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing this with us, Lottie. And, you know, just like your response just now throughout the book, it really comes across that you don't, you know, treat these stories as bounded in place, bounded in a particular nation or in a specific time. And my next question sort of delves into that. So throughout the book, you follow the one and a half insurgent generation of El Salvador, in your words, uh, both in Chalatenango and its diasporic communities. And mm -hmm. I'm curious what this term signifies for you and how does it inform a long durée understanding of war and the diaspora's war forges? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so, so much of our writing comes like, in, you know, you experiment and you think about it. And so I, I borrow from the sociological literature on kind of 1.5 immigrants and the idea that um, it kind of it's a liminal, a liminal generation that sort of is brought from their home community as young people to a new land and have to negotiate language, culture, and so on, and negotiate from their parents' generation and then oftentimes siblings who are born in, in a new land, right? So the second generation. Um, so I was really thinking about and playing with that when I returned to my field notes and also when I continued to do... Um, you know, engaged ethnographic research with uh, young people that I had first met um, when they were infants, toddlers, um, young kids, uh, teenagers. Uh, and I met them again decades later, either in New Jersey, Virginia, LA, DC area, uh, or back in Chalatenango, in, mostly in the municipality of Las Vueltas and a community that I call El Rancho. And so I started really thinking about this generation and broadly defined, I'm not a sociologist, so I don't think <laughs> sort of in these bounded kinds of, although I think that's a, a really excellent project. It's not the way that I was kind of doing a sociological study around generation, but at the same time, I felt myself being part of a larger conversation on generation and change and trauma and pain in El Salvador. And so um, I found myself thinking along with scholars, there's a, you know, in the book, I talk about a whole journal uh, that came out, um, I think edited by Jennifer Burrell and Ellen Moody on generation in Central America. I was thinking about some of my, uh, some of the young people, one of my former students, who's now a postdoc at the University of Western in uh, London, Ontario, in Canada, Adriana Alas, who has done extraordinary work on the generation of post-war in these places and the recuperation of historical memories. I was thinking about the work of Fernando Chacon, another young scholar who's doing this sort of work on memory, what Marianne Hirsch would talk about is post-memory, right? The kinds of, the way in which intergenerational trauma gets um, socialized into generations who didn't live that trauma. Um, and so I started really thinking about that long arc, not only of thinking about the moment currently of those young people, but actually that I had some extraordinary, beautiful things to consider, given the fact that I had known parents, grandparents, 
and now young adults in the early 1990s who had been socialized through radical collective action. And I think importantly, what my work has also shown, socialized through uh, decades of disillusionment and this engaño, decepción, desencanto, all of that. And so I really thought that it was that particularity that I could open up and think about the 1.5 generation that's still in El Salvador, many who are now part of kind of movements to recuperate the past in ways that are um, open, some people might say depoliticizing, uh, open to different narratives, not just about insurgency as a heroic narrative, and also thinking about the generation that are in the diaspora and whose political quiet, some might argue, right? They're not at the forefront of, they were, most are not recipients of DACA because of a variety of reasons. Most are not at the, in the center of immigration rights movements, dreamers and so on, but who in their everyday labor, in their everyday building of home, in their everyday rem- connection via remittances as a political and economic and social cultural act, I argue, are part of that continuum. And I think not discrete, easy, radical through line of militancy. And I think that to me uh, was an important intervention for us to think about. And it contests the kinds of ongoing narratives around Salvador and Central Americans in the diaspora as part of a gang violence problem and so on. And so I wanted to sort of show that the long durée of post-war was intimately a conversation on generation. Um, As much as I try not to be too romantic or utopic or place even more uh, burden on the youth, as I say, to like save us all, right? But I wanted to sort of uplift and underscore the diversity of the 1.5 insurgent generation and the kinds of like collectivity that runs across borders uh, and across generations. That's sort of, that's, that, that is a legacy. I do think that le- is a legacy uh, of, of wartime collective action. Yeah. yeah, that's really beautiful. And thanks so much for really opening up what 1.5 means. Um, and I want to follow up on other numbers that your book <laughs> centers on. Um, you know, you especially draw our attention to the aftermath of violence and how they can be made and remade. Um mm-hmm you know, how they make and remake violence in El Salvador. And I was wondering if you could talk to us about that and how, you know, how this informed your effective approach to violence, how your approach to numbers in this way, um, yeah, made you form this kind of effective approach. Yeah, thank you for that question. So, Alize, that was the hardest chapter for me to write, mm-hmm. but was also the seat of the book. Mm. Um, and, and it's a chapter that took me, it went through, the other thing I think we never talk about is the multiple revisions, right, that it takes. <laughs> right. um, but out of, that is, that sort of, it was the seat of the book. It came out of um, conversations and, a, and in a, an invited presentation that I had to give on democracy, democratization. Um, and it actually, again, came from the kind of um, hegemonic, extraordinarily circulating statistical panic around El Salvador, um, in El Salvador and in the United States. It really emerged in this time in the mid-aughts around kind of the extraordinary, where El Salvador was um you know, had the highest homicide rate, one of the highest murder rate capitals of the world. Today, we could talk about it in terms of, I believe it has now become with 68,000 mostly young men incarcerated under the uh, Najib Bukele regime. Um, It has become, I think, one of the highest rates of incarceration in in the world. Um, So, and then again, the kind of, 
anxiety of our borders and quote in quote, you know, the surge of unaccompanied migrants and so on. And so it is actually the the chapter that made me think that, oh, there's some I some something there a different narrative can come of this really embodied corporal statistical panic that, you know, um was circulating internationally, right, across the globe. Um, and so in my, so I was born in Argentina and I was first Spanish, Castellano was my first language. Kind of the bilingual, bicultural nature of it m- made me think about n- embodied violence, encrypted numbers. And I came up with this concept, which is part of my code switching, of violencia encifrada, in the in is actually not traditional Spanish, but I decided that it reflected that kind of um, experience that I was talking about, the embodied encrypted corporal numbers. I, I decided to think through what numbers can do. And I worked with a lot of, you know, extraordinary work out there. Um, Diane Nelson, late Diane Nelson's work on um, numbers in Guatemala was incredibly formative. Uh, the ways in which numbers can can elide, can erase, can dehumanize, can anesthetize, but they also, in the aggregate, can push for radical truths and human rights uh, and so on. Um, and then I wanted to look at the kind of everyday numbers um, and the kind of work that they do. Um, all again, thinking about the the statistical panic that I think is also part of our contemporary period. Um, and so what I tried to do is link my examination of how numbers are deployed, how they can tell some stories and not others, as I point to things such as the atlases of violence that I think are you know, extraordinary public policy work that is happening in El Salvador um, by incredible organizations. I wanted to give kind of different reading of that um, for so many of us that are consumers of numbers. And I wanted to provide an alternate path for us to think about it, even as we think about the reintegration into society what that means across generations. Um, and so I move through different renderings of how to, how to read numbers. And I try to then link that to, I think one of the other stories that I think is important are those is the quotidianness of kind of chronic everyday violence and which leads to sort of the next chapter. I, I think that I tried to do is sort of that linking of numbers and bodies. Um, but that that chapter was a difficult one for me because I felt this urge to um, get the numbers right, even mm-hmm. as I was trying to like critique that getting the numbers <laughs> right. So yeah. So <laughs> thanks for that question. <laughs> no, of course. Thanks for you know sharing also the difficulties with writing. Um, yeah, so you mentioned the next chapter and you know, your chapter on bodies is the one that really stayed with me after I read the book. Um, I especially appreciated your attentiveness to injury and debility and you do that so wonderfully by weaving in your collaborators' testimonies but also your personal history, which, you know, I think... I don't know, which as a reader made me think that that must have been very difficult to do. So why was it important to think with debility for you? And I'm curious how you see care as, um, how you see care emerging through that kind of lens. Yeah. Thank you, Alize. Um, this chapter was really important to me and um, it, it, it was the one where I sort of um, tried to, I was very careful in my writing. It was the one where I felt like I really had to hold, maybe in all of the chapters, I, I hope that readers get the sense of that, like I'm caring and almost like caressing the stories or hold, holding holding up the stories, holding holding them with love and care. And that one, um, so many people who sort of 
enter into critical disability studies, talk about how uh, the field sort of found them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as I, as I mentioned earlier on, I, I was developing these new kind of competencies, I thought, or I tried in new areas and new interests I was, as I was developing um, another one of my projects. And I'm not quite sure how it will emerge and what kind of writing style it will be, but sort of on motherhood, on childhood genetic difference and things like that. And so I had been plotting away on, on that and you know, reading novels and memoirs and medical anthropology and all sorts of interdisciplinary literatures. And I kept returning to um, bodies in my own life. I was a, I trained and I was a professional ballerina in my, in my young, my young life and uh, danced a year professionally with Hartford Ballet as an apprentice. And so I've always thought through embodiment and through bodies as well, right? Um, so um, I sort of, so the so that chapter is a weaving, I think, of all of those aspects of my understanding, uh, and it was also, and so I I held, I was careful and got permission, for example, from family members to share aspects of our family story, right? Because the one thing that we have learned about um, injury and illness and so on is that it's, you know, illness narratism, for example, uh, it is, they're social narratives. They're about kinship. They're about family. Um, And it also gave me a way back into the kind of narratives that I, that I didn't include in my first book. Of course, in Everyday Revolutionaries, um, that book was really concerned in part to think about um, that early transition and post-war period uh, and the kinds of asks that Everyday Revolutionaries, rank-and-file members, women in particular, uh, were being asked to do to rebuild their communities and the kinds of disillusionment, paradox, and so on um, the obligated migration that emerges. And of course, there are narratives of loss and pain in that first book, but I was also working hard not to reproduce the kind of sen- like spectacular violences that were narrated, but were actually not part of everyday narrative storytelling practices. Um, there were different kinds of naturally occurring speech that I was attentive to in that first book. Um, but that said, I did have many um, ethnographic open-ended interviews and field work exchanges where that kind of spectacular violence um, was shared. And so I returned to that with a new lens. And I think that is sort of also the arc of what can be the beauty of long-term engagement um, with people and places across borders and so on. And so I also returned to that, to those narratives also with a new recognition that for, and I, and I, and I do think this is, I I do think this is correct that in the early 1990s and early 2000s, the language of trauma was not centered in former insurgent communities. And that today there is a reclaiming of injury and trauma and the ongoing human rights work that is going on in these communities. So a new generation, uh, that 1.5 insurgent generation that is in fact working on historical memory. And I can talk a little bit about that if it comes up in kind of some of the new projects that I'm a collaborator with, with some uh, incredible project, um, are using did deploy the language of injury and trauma and pain in new kind of ways. Uh, And so I returned with that as well. Um, And the kind of disability studies then that I was um, inspired by was the work um, that asked us to consider it as a method, not necessarily as an identity. And Mm -hmm. so that's why I look at the work of Livingston and Poir and uh, Rolf to think about debility. Um, 
And I thought, and here too, I wanted to really be honest and think about it in Spanish, in <laughs> it, the potential meanings of debility that emerge, actually, you see in the narratives, in Chalatenango, in El Rancho, in Las Vueltas, and in my own formation of what, how, how perhaps a different inflection of debilidad, ser débil, what that feeling of what debility makes you feel for, an, for another. And that's what led me to think about kind of pushing, pushing the ideas to think about the ethics of collective care that I found as a continuum in the kinds of narratives of wartime loss and violence and the ongoing kind of ethics of, of care and collectivity that you can see across borders, even in that last chapter where there's like a stunning interview with a, a young person that I call Marleni and her militant refusal, even as she has militant refusal, it's framed within an ethics of collective care for her communities, both in the United States and, and in El Rancho. Uh, and so that focus on bodies, on debilidad, on what that forces, obligates um, different people to do, I thought was uh, important for me to sort of unravel and unmask and highlight. Um, and I hope with, with respect and honor um, for how difficult those stories are are actually to tell, to share, and to hear or to read for readers. Yeah. yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah it's it i mean as a reader it really comes across that way and i thought it was such a thoughtful um but also very emotional chapter so thank you for writing that um and yeah you mentioned you know your approach to disability studies as a method so i want to continue on this thread of uh, methods um, and you know hosting this podcast I have the privilege of asking things that really interest me so one <laughs> thing I'm really interested in personally is how people archive their personal histories themselves by collecting particular objects or stories and whatnot and maybe that's why I was really struck by Nancy's suitcase archive which reveals the limits of official documentation in archiving life. So can you speak to the relationship between objects and archive making, maybe even in diaspora? Um, thanks. I can't wait to read your, your stuff on that. So <laughs> I can't wait. You'll, um, we're all excited. Um, so this chapter was like, real, you know, the most fun to write. This, you know, again, maybe we don't, I don't, think we often share this enough with each other, but it was, um, it, it was a, a chapter that I was trying to do kind of a lot of different things. Um, and I felt like it was a, it, the, again, um, the, the nugget of that chapter is exactly kind of Nancy's suitcase as an archive of the return. And from there, everything sort of, um, I went back and forth in time to think about um, objects, how they're curated, what they mean and what they mean over time, right? Like how, um, and how, and how people curate 
different objects at different time and, and actually at a time and, and why objects were so important to again, demystify or wreck the very image we have that the deportee returns with nothing. That was very important to me as well to sort of upend the kinds of narratives that we may have about abject poverty, not to deny any of that, Mm -hmm. but that folks are, um, are curating and cultivating their desire for stuffs and taking care of their things. Um, And so in that chapter, I sort of talk about the chapter merged with this idea of objects, but also what you carry. Um, And as many, as many of us are, we read amply and not only anthropology, right? So many, many years ago, um, I read the classic war, um, book, The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien, and that had sort of, and then The Sorrow of War years later. And so I, uh, on Vietnam War again, so I was, I carried that with me as I thought about material culture, as I thought about objects, as I thought about all the young people who told stories about how they crossed borders with or without things. Uh, also, of course, inspired by the work of Jason de Leon, um, uh, that he talks about, about the kind of his rendering of objects and so on. Um, with the archive of The Returned, I was really also working with, you know, lots of folks who work on documentation and immigration and so on. Um, I really wanted to tell a different kind of story. And so, and it was a story that didn't come from from me, right? I really wanted to honor the the kind of magic, even though it was kind of pained magic of when Nancy takes out her drawings. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and that was such an intimate, multi-generational moment. Um, and I thought it just, just flies in the face of the kinds of things that get, you know, even thinking, you know, about what is an archive the process of archiving, what you hold on to, how you take care of it, how you make the actual feeling of the art, all that, all, all that stuff. Um, so I, I wanted to, I wanted to honor that and ask, push us to ask questions exactly about sort of the limits of what documentation can do. And we know that those documents are so powerful. We right. know that they're so powerful and that they can actually they can actually work towards justice. So even as much as we know that so much research, sociological, anthropological, and so on has shown that you can't actually, they can't tell a full story that you'll know, you know, all of that, and that they're always partial uh, in that, in that exchange, we can see that there's still that push to put, put those documentation documents and documentation in order for a possible future that could lead to something. And that sits next to the kind of beauty and care around the art, right? That, that Nancy produces and saves, right? For herself, for her child, and then, and decides to then share with me along with those documents. And so um, I really wanted to think about the archive of the return. I really wanted to give space for that um and to tell this different kind of alternate knowledge production for for all of us yeah yeah that's really beautiful and you know you talked about how you want to tell a different story but i also appreciated how you refrained from telling the whole story like in that part of the book um when you present Nancy's story, maybe it's not a right word to describe it, but you censor particular times and places and you make the reader know that you're doing so. So what kinds of ethical or political work did this practice of censoring do for you? Or if you, you know, call it something else, um, yeah, what that sort of, you know, constraint did for you? Yeah, thank you. Um, I thought I thought a lot about this, and I really have to thank my press, who 
I uh, was supportive because I, mm. at first they were like, what's going, I don't understand, <laughs> you know, but they were, <laughs> they were great. And I was really trying to, I was trying to keep things, right? I wanted mm-hmm. to do so, several things. So you're right. So much of this, uh, what we do in anthropology, as we know, like we, we, for decades now, we've really been wrestling. We don't have the answers, but we keep going back and pushing the discipline to think about ethics in new ways. I think, I think, and I, it's a hard work and I, we can need to continue to do it. Um, and so part of this was a political act. While I was doing a lot of this research, I re- went back to declassified documents uh, in the National Security Archives and declassified CIA documents where so much is redacted, right? Um, and so it made me think like so much is redacted. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so interesting. Um, but yet you can piece some things together. Um, and so I wanted... I wanted to think through kind of what it means, like even as a, is it, even a, as anthropologists, we sometimes in some cases, as I say in the introduction, talk about the making of composites or being very careful with the kinds of ways that you share stories uh, and identifying markers and all of that, that I do think is really important. Uh, and doesn't diminish at all the kind of particular narrative that uh, we want to be honest uh, about and respect people's lives. Um, So I wanted to play with that for the readers and show them that actually the kind of work that is politically sensitive and that has long-term effects that are unknowable I wanted to sort of show kind of also poetically and politically that that's, that's what I was doing. And so I did also the same thing. And in, in, in the objects chapter where I talk about Ruben and his family, I wanted to be really careful about, you know, saying when and where and blocking that out. Uh, And, you know, and that is actually a play on so much of the work that is done in El Salvador that was redacted, right? Mm-hmm. That was declassified, which is incredible, but that still has um, classified elements to it. And so I wanted to put power mm-hmm. to do that um, for people who were sharing really intimate, intense things that have that are political, right? In our in our current historical moment, yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad you did that and. Um, shout out to Stanford University Press for letting you do that as well. Um, you know, we've been having a wonderful conversation and actually it really follows from the book. Like the book really reads as, reads like not just a conversation between you and your collaborators, but also with your readers. And in fact, you often openly address the reader. Sometimes you gently lead us to imagine places, people, or stories. And I'm curious about your approach um, to these dynamics of address and imagination in your writing. Thank you. That was something that I also wrestled with and, um, Um, and I think here, like it's an ode to the line of poets in my family. And I think it's also a recognition to an attempt to sort of build on honor kind of narrative practices, um, that are, that I think are in naturally occurring speech in this area in Chalatenango, but also I think part of my positioning in, as a young internacional who was first walking into Chalatenango in 1993. Um, and so I was really interested in thinking about um, how I can, could take that really powerful narrative strategy of a man, imagínese, like, and it, like, you know, and I went back and I was digitizing Um, my old cassette tapes, again, my seasoned (laughs) anthropologist, uh, digitizing them in real time. Um, 
and and listening to that invocation, that call to action of to really imagine, imagine to picture, um, to feel in its richness of sensorium, um, what those stories, what was being shared. And so I wanted to think about ways of doing that and engaging and bringing um, readers in to those spaces. Um, and I did it also to think about horizontality, I think, mm-hmm. um, to sort of create, because I think that's what that imaginese actually does. It's also an embodied practice. And so I think it was uh, an attempt to do that and to be also transparent of my position, the positionality of how I was writing. Um, so I hope it was successful. <laughs> oh, it's, I mean, it was wonderful. I'm, you know, I, I think it made it a very unique book for me precisely because of that among many things. Um, something else I'm curious about in your storytelling or narrative practice is the role of pauses. So throughout the book, you're not, yeah, maybe you're daring enough to, pause as a writer when you know difficult topics come up for you or you would dare to tell the reader to pause and do some sensory work so I'd love to hear more about how you thought through pauses and how you wrote about them oh that's a good question um I think it was a uh perhaps in returning to this, these sort of difficult stories that I had um, not missed, Mm -hmm. but I had made the decision to sort of highlight other things in my previous work. Um, I think it was when I do that, it's around really respecting the power of of those moments, um, whether I was the intended addressee or not of an exchange, um, and to really care and and hold hold with with um, real honor, respect, and love the kinds of stories of either spectacular violence or everyday life, whether it was in 1993 or in 2000s. Um, I wanted to show the important of that uh, importance of that, and also in in field work, what I think is is really kind of extraordinary about working in um, Chalatenango across generations is the 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 real space, and I've learned so much about this um, for my own life, among so many things that I feel so fortunate to have experienced is like a real, a real respect for kind of the temporality of storytelling or reflections or testimonios, um, the real community space that is created when that happens. Um, and the quiet that then can emerge after that mm-hmm. before someone else perhaps takes the floor and what I think that that is a, a life lesson that um, I take with me. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I, I try to um, create that uh, for myself as a writer and for then readers of the book. Yeah, as a reader, I really appreciated that. Um, so as we approach the end of our conversation, I want to zoom out a little bit and talk about the book more broadly. So you call After Stories a protracted, intimate ethnography in Solidaridad. So how did you shape your methodology around protraction, intimacy, and Solidaridad? And I know you spoke a little bit about this, but I'd love to hear more about the sort of broader picture. Yeah. Um, So... Yeah. Okay. So I, I had you, I thought you were going to ask me about that. I think the interesting thing about methods in, 
in anthropology. And you have to tell me because we're of such different generations. So I would love to know how like graduate training in different places on method has evolved and so on. Um, non-existent. Okay, right. <laughs> So, in my experience <laughs> i mean it's really it's just kind of it's just really really it's so interesting and so um and i was so fortunate to work uh to be a student of uh, a linguistic anthropologist bambi shefflin at nyu who um was just gave me such an important sort of lens to think about method and then in that way around narrative. And so maybe that's actually, you can see the, you can see the legacy of that perhaps mm. in my attention to storytelling um, and pauses, actually, if we're gonna go back to that. Um, and, and then also just having colleagues, but also mentors in feminist anthropology, right? Um, and the kind of earliest kind of writings on feminist of color critiques and so on. Um, through one of my former mentors uh, for my master's, a, a Caribbeanist, Connie Sutton, and so on. Um, and so I've always been really, I think, in our work to think about engaged anthropology, activist anthropology, horizontal, collaborative, in, in our work on kind of really thinking about anti-racist pedagogy, decolonial work, and so on. Um, I wanted to, I was really critical. I think I was really critical of the field as I was right, like critical of the field of, of where I, as we all are, right? Even, even, even as we think about que puede brindar, what is, what is, what is kind of what could be awesome and what is awesome about uh, an anthropology that is uh, engaged, activist, public, all of that, um, however we define it. And so that is, I think, how I started, went back to think about the longitudinal as protracted. It's both its beauty and its richness, but also the kinds of asks that are always, always about power. Um, the intimacy, I think, comes again from that, that I, I play with the idea of what is intimate in the book, but it is a really, it is so intimate. Anthropologists use their bodies, right, as their, as their tool, as their herramienta, their body minds, and like, and what is asked of people in those intimate spaces. And even as we critique that we can do more, and I don't want to be romantic or utopic, I do think there's something really powerful about solidarity and about solidaridad as experienced in Central America. I can't, you know, what we, what many people talk about allyship and I'm not making a general, general statement or even saying, you know, that it's this, the utopic end of, ev you know, the answer to everything. But I did feel like thinking about accompaniment compromiso that one has over time in different places with different members of communities, I thought was one way that I could honor the work of anthropological responsibility. Um, not saying it, it's the answer in the end, but I, I really felt that that was a through line for, for the book. And it also came, I talk a little bit about this in the book, and it also came it, inf it informed what informed my writing was also my work as expert witness as Perita Antropologica for the Hermosote massacre case. And so as I was writing after stories, I was also doing an, uh, a dictamen, an expert witness report um, of that massacre, not in Chalatenango, but in Hermosote, Lugares Aledeños, in uh, the Department of Morazan. Uh, a massacre that took place in December 1981, where close to 1,000 unarmed civilians, mostly women, children, and elderly, uh, were brutally massacred by uh, the military uh, state-sponsored violence. And so that too, I think, really informed the writing of this book, even though it was a parallel and different kind of project. All right. Um... 
Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that with us. So my last question is, what comes after, after stories? What are you researching, reading, teaching next? Uh, okay. So um, I am so, um, I have several projects that I'm working on. Um, one is an outgrowth of a project that we did uh, with uh, two colleagues on um, universities under fire and repression. Um, and so we are now working on a second that came out uh, in with Rutledge. Um, also in 2023. And so now we're working on another project on sort of higher education and repression across the Americas. And it's another co-edited volume. And I think it is extraordinarily important. And so these are, this is work that I'm uh, working on with collaborators across countries uh, here in the United States, in different states where, for example, DEI is under attack tenure is under attack, what you can teach, critical race theory, uh, women's and gender studies, queer theory, uh, and in places like uh, universities in Brazil, in Venezuela, Venezuela, El Salvador. And so it's a hemispheric kind of um, multi-country uh, project. I'm really committed and excited about that. I've also been uh, really lucky and moved to be working with the archive of um, Ralph Sprenkels, who was a brilliant, dear friend of mine, anthropologist, historian. Uh, and he passed away in 2019. And um, with his wife, Michelle Melera Minero, who is a poet, a artist, and a sociologist, is archiving his project of photographs. And with... Um, a project based out of Western University that I mentioned before um, in London, Ontario, uh, with uh, called Memoria Sobreviviente, and the project director is uh, Professor Amanda Jib and postdoctoral fellow Adriana Alas is sort of uh, key in all of those projects. We are working on a beautiful book that came out uh, of photography and. Uh, reflections or testimonies that come from um, participants who engaged in this kind of extraordinary workshop where um, the photographs were matched up with their personal evocative memories of the early post-war period. So that is a project that we're I'm working on right now. Um, I think I think we'll end it there with the projects that I'm working on right now. I think I've got another project, but I'll leave it at that. And I, you know, I always read, a, I don't know what this says about me. I just finished this really interesting book in translation um, called Stolen. Um, let me see who I, I just so it's written by um, Anne Helene. Um, how do you pronounce her last name? Lasidius, and it was translated by Rachel Wilson Broyles. And it's about, it takes place in Sweden in an indigenous community of reindeer herders. It was really fascinating, made me think a lot. Uh, I just finished that. I, but I always have a bunch of books on my, on my night table. The one I'm reading next is called Solito. It's a memoir by Javier Zamora. And I'm also in the middle of finishing Shadow King, and then I have, I always go back to some books of poetry. So I'm, I'm one of those readers that has <laughs> multiple things that you're reading at the same time. But Solito I'm reading, I think, will be the next one that I finish. Um, and teaching, um, some of my favorite classes to teach, um, the one that I think I'll be teaching next is Anthropology of Childhood. Oh. Um, and... Um, I'm really excited to delve into some new literature on that. And I find that my, that it's an incredibly fun class to teach that disrupts and dislodges all of our notions for uh, around childhood. And at city college where I teach, we have such an extraordinary diversity in all of what that word means of students that um, bring with them 
such richness to think about power and childhood and so on. So I'm really looking forward to that. I wish I could take that class. <laughs> Too bad I can't. Um, <laughs> but yeah, thank you very much for sharing all of this, Loti, and for joining us and for your insights. Very, very happy to have you talk to us today. Oh, thank you so much. It was, um, it's been such a great, great conversation and so wonderful to talk to you. Alize, and I thank you for reading the book and I thank our listeners for, for giving me this opportunity. I think I speak for all of us that the pleasure is all ours. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. This discussion of after stories, transnational intimacies of post-war El Salvador, published by Stanford University Press in 2022, is brought to you by the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.